This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. It's Wednesday. No PMQs still, although it'd be quite good PMQs, I think, if there was one. Instead, we've got disunited kingdom political news from the four corners of the UK, including a competition to see which is the best place. Uh, we'll see if uh, everyone can make the case for where they're from. Uh, we'll also discuss the fate of Geronimo. Anyway, that's coming up on the podcast shortly. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Wednesday, so it must be Crampon. It's Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. Morning, Robert. Morning, Matt. And you're in the studio. I know, it's great, isn't it? I haven't seen you for 18 months. And yeah. Here I am. It's a very long... And I'm t- feeling left out, I'm afraid. Yeah, I know. Alice, Alice, I'm in Devon. You're, well, I mean, you know, you're, you're down in Devon. Uh, so uh, how is it down in Devon? Well, Robert's already told me he's getting coffee in the office. He's not very um, nice. And you're having a chat, and it all sounds really kind of glamorous, well, I have to say. I tell you what, the mistake that Robert's made is he's got coffee out of the machine yeah. rather than from the oh, coffee okay. <laughs> So I was, I was told it was going to be horrible, and, and it is. So you're, <laughs> so you're not missing anything so there, yeah, yeah. But, do, but you're going to come, come back soon, aren't you? Yes, I'm now, I think I'm now coming back forever, actually. I'm now desperate to be in the office the whole time, even though I've written about four-day weeks. I yes. Think I've seven <laughs> days a week at the well, you can recreate the experience by just going out to the garden and getting some mud, uh, <laughs> mixing it with some hot water, and then you've yeah. got a coffee yeah. like uh, the one Robert's got. So if I, um, nicely segued there, Alice. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about your, um, your column today. Uh, <laughs> the British idea of a perfect life is a one-day working week. <laughs> Um, I suppose it depends if you're only, if you're still being paid for the full five days. That's the mm-hmm. that's the big question. Um, well, that was the problem. So that I mean, the, the, these researchers at Cambridge at the beginning of the year they were trying to work out exactly what made people happiest, and partly they were doing it for the Treasury because the Treasury wanted to know what to do. And they found out that people were happiest in Britain on one day a week, which is then the, the Treasury did use those statistics when they did the, the furlough. They, they allowed people to work for one day a week. Because people are very unhappy if they don't work at all and pretty unhappy if they work five days a week. But um, I think in France and Germany, they like the three to four day week, um, as do most yeah. of the rest of the world. So I think we are probably one of the laziest. Yeah, when people have been asking me, oh, you know, what, what are you going to do in, in, the, in the new normal? And I've said, well, you know, I'll probably go into work two, three days a week and, and do a couple of days at home. You know, is, isn't that what everybody wants to do? But apparently it isn't. No, everybody wants to actually work one day a week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's the... What's the kind of point of the research, Alice? Because isn't that just sort of obvious? 
Would it be apart from, no, I think the other countries really do want to work three or four days a week. Right. And I would say that. I'm definitely, I couldn't work one day a week. It would drive me completely nuts. I would hate working one day a week. So I think that um, actually they were very surprised about it. And then what, you know, now I think that what's interesting is four or five years ago, everyone was talking about the four-day week, who were the trade unionists and Labour have been talking about it. And all the economists were going, don't be ridiculous, this is such a bad idea. You know, mm. it's a kind of, you know, it comes straight out of Venezuela well, or they said the 1970s. Same about, they said the same about the minimum wage, didn't they? Well, exactly. And now yeah. it just seems a better idea. And 100 years ago, they had this huge campaign to get a weekend in Britain that was the trade unionists actually saying, you know, we need it. Because people used to say Monday's off a bit, but... You know, they, they, they never had a proper weekend. And I think now the three-day weekend is probably coming, which is kind of surprising. In a way, I think it's great. In a way, I am slightly dubious because I'm not sure I do want that much time off, to be honest. You get used to what you have, <laughs> don't you? I can't really decide. I mean, it's very it's, it's hard for people, I think, to know whether... I think it's because you're nervous then that you won't... You know, that you won't be able to do your job or that you'll get behind. I think the problem is it's one of those things where everyone has to work four days a week or it's not mm. going to work. I suspect most people would take a 20% pay cut to work four days a week. But that, I suppose they? that's the difference, yeah. which is slightly different to taking a 80% um, pay yeah. cut to, earn, to work one day a week. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, most people won't. So three, when they asked them, four-fifths of people said that they wouldn't want to take a pay cut. They just assumed that you'd be paid as much <laughs> four-day week, which I thought was great in a way that they just, yeah. you know, they've done back. But it is interesting, isn't it? I was chatting to somebody um, the other day who was looking to maybe reduce their hours or, or um, uh, change their job. And there is a point at which the job you're doing, if there is a job, and particularly if you're doing a job which isn't, you know, you're not part of a whole team of people, that you're the, if you're the only person doing mm. the job, you basically end up doing that job regardless of the hours. You know, so quite often I think this, this is the case, particularly of, of mums who yeah. uh, end up working part-time. They're basically doing a full-time person's mm. job in the 28 hours or... 25 hours. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's been some research done about job shares, haven't they? You're usually done by women. And, you know, and yeah, they're doing they're doing five days a week in three days. Because not yeah. everyone is absolutely working flat out. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're on a production line or, a yeah. you know, or a till or something where you are doing a job for that entire period of time. Yeah. But if you're flouncing about as columnists... That's right. I mean, if, if you've basically got a middle-class white-collar job, in other words. I mean, I think the hardest work I've done was I worked in a factory for six months. That was hard. And full-time childcare. That was hard. Not yeah. that I, I didn't do a great deal of it, but what I did was really difficult. Whereas so here, they say you can get productivity up, don't they? That basically yeah. you'll just, you will, but they won't get it up somewhere like if you're in an Amazon warehouse, you're already working absolutely flat up. They can't get that productivity. I mean, they've squeezed everything they possibly can out of people, I think. So what it does show in the research is that the people... Mm. We've got our kind of jobs are prepared to take a pay cut for an, one day off because they know probably they can squeeze it all in. Whereas the people in the Amazon warehouse are going, yeah, warehouse going absolutely no way can we do any more. It's hard to see how Amazon could get any more efficient as a company. Much as much as we criticise it, it is phenomenal when you order something at ten o'clock and it turns up yeah. four hours later. There's an interesting thing though, isn't there? That obviously, lots of people have taken those jobs, uh, Amazon and so on. In them often a thousand pounds, I think, to go and drive lorries for at the moment. Um, but if other parts of the economy start paying more, start being more, you know, part of the problem we've got is that people don't want to be lorry drivers because it's long hours, you're away mm. from home and all that, and if there are other opportunities around. Yeah. We spoke to, Robbie, we spoke to somebody a couple of weeks ago, it was a guy who ran uh, a couple of restaurants, I think, in Liverpool, mm. who had, because of all this concern about hospitality and people not wanting to work, he was cutting their hours from 48 hours to 40, but keeping the pay the same. Right. Because he wanted them to have some time. I suppose that is, I mean, particularly in hospitality, that could be essentially five days to four days if you're yeah. doing long days. Um, knowing that actually retaining the staff 
uh, was more important than the the margin of yeah. uh, of what he was playing. And maybe that's ultimately for tough jobs, jobs are just slightly harder than sucking pencils and writing columns. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what will end up happening. It, it, maybe so. You have to pay a bit more. The labour shortages are in. Funny you mentioned Liverpool. I've got a friend in uh, who works in hotels, really senior guy in hotels. He's making beds in hotels in Liverpool at the moment. Uh, as are all the senior executives, because they just haven't got any staff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But, I mean, that's effectively paying people more for less, or the same for less. Uh, you know, you giving them a pay rise. In yeah. A, yeah, making it more attractive, yeah. Well, that's what happens, isn't it, if you can't get so you just wonder, You just wonder whether the age of us getting stuff absurdly cheap, because, you know, whether yeah. that's staying in a hotel or going to yeah. a bar or ordering on Amazon, maybe we've also got used to paying a bit more. I Yeah. For lots of things. Yeah, for yeah. lots of things. I think that will happen with the lorry drivers that will just, you know, they are, they ended up being so badly paid and working such long hours that no one would do it. You know, actually, if they could work part time and they were paid properly, mm. they would start coming back. But I mean, that's going to be the upside, isn't it? It's a useful corrective, yeah, this, isn't it? Because before the COVID pandemic, and Brexit. Before the pandemic, we were talking about zero hours contracts and how people were being exploited and all the rest of it. And it was a sort of employer's yeah. market. And in 18 months, it's the boots on the other foot, isn't it? Yeah. Which is. Mm. Maybe needed to happen. Yeah, probably, probably, probably did. Mm. Uh, let's move away from uh, how we treat workers. Instead, let's talk about animals. <laughs> Is Geronimo still alive? <laughs> who, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we killed him off last week. Oh. I know. Um, I don't know how many cows have now been killed in the meantime that have also had TB. I mean, that's what I think is extraordinary, is that... It's amazing. I, 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 I tweeted last week saying, if we could just put Geronimo in charge of BBC News, <laughs> but two of the most irritating stories <laughs> yeah. of the summer would just go away. Yeah. But it's not just that, because we've also had this guy, this former uh, mm -hmm. Marine, Penn Farthing, talking about how he's out, he's got a load of wild stray cats and dogs in Afghanistan, which apparently is much more important than getting translators back. Um, uh, and this, this honestly, I've had so many messages, people tweeting me, DMing me, getting very cross about it. It's my fault that he's got a lot of cats. Uh, and you all know my views on cats. But anyway, this was Defence Secretary Ben Wallace talking about how, quite astonishingly, he thought we should prioritise people over pets. He has been told that his people and him are eligible to resettle in the UK. As a British passport holder, so is he. But, but look, frankly, my day job and my evening job and my night job is focusing on those thousands of people outside the front gate. He's been offered a place last Friday. He was called forward. I strongly recommend he does that. Uh, and, you know, once the evacuation is over, I genuinely believe that the, his workforce, and if he wants to repatriate the, the pets that he looks after and the, the strays, I genuinely believe that they will be allowed to move forward after, you know, at a later date when that airport opens. But, you know, frankly, I have to prioritise people at the moment over pets. We are, as a nation, mad about animals. Yeah, we? mad's the right word, I think. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah not just, yeah. <laughs> we, we're not quite mad happy. just as in, as in love with, but mad as in... Not a... Yes. Yeah, because the, the, the uh, and particularly when, it actually goes back to, you know, we, we want everything cheap, so we treat certain workers quite badly. We, also treat animals quite badly. You know, everyone wants a cheap chicken, and then we completely yeah. lose our nut about some cats mm. in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah, no, total hypocrisy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly speechless, <laughs> given what's probably happening and, and certainly is about to happen to actual human beings in Afghanistan. This is just 
I mean, also, I'm, I think the animals I'm, have greater <laughs> chance of survival for some of them. I mean, that's the problem yeah. for me is that you just look at them and you think if you're a wild cat in Afghanistan, yeah, you may you, have more of a chance or a dog you, yeah. than, you know, if you're actually, if you're gay or you're a woman yeah. trying to get to school or you're a former politician or translator. I mean, you know, yeah. it is just extraordinary that people just love fluffy animals while they're eating their, you know, chicken. A, a wild cat in Afghanistan is probably hard as nails, isn't it? <laughs> it can probably use, can probably use an AK forty seven. I imagine. Yeah, it could probably and it could probably do much much better. Do you know what? I can absolutely guarantee that we're going to have messages about this. But we we basically seem to be in full, in full agreement. Somebody told me off yesterday for not apparently challenging the columnist enough, but we basically agree. We need to get a quit when it comes to I thought Ben Wallace did well to keep his keep fairly cool there. Actually. And it's actually been interesting, isn't it? Ben Wallace has um, got through this, despite it basically happening on his watch. He is literally the defence secretary. Mm. He has got through this with. Uh, his reputation more intact yeah, than yeah, yeah, uh, Dominic, the beach was closed, yeah. uh, the sea was closed. But that's right. partly because he started crying, didn't he, almost? I mean, the fact that he sounded choked up and sounded upset and was emotional was so much more important than Dominic constantly going back to whether or not he could swim in the sea and his holidays. I mean, he just couldn't stop, could he? he just, no. There wasn't a moment when he just empathised enough with all the horrendous situations going on. And there was a one brilliant piece about at the airport about, you know, in The Lion King at the beginning when they hold up Simba and they said, we yeah. keep having these Simba moments when we're holding up babies yeah. and they, you know, they've got lost. And you're thinking, oh, my God, I mean, it's just appalling and awful. And Dominic has to stop talking about his holidays. Yeah, he's digging a big hole on a beach, isn't he? You see the sun flying up. Yeah, and actually, the, the answer, when he is asked about his holidays, is probably to say, look, this isn't about me. I yeah. want to, you know, I ha mm. I'm working for, instead of getting all cross, there seems to be, we seem to now be embroiled in whether or not there's been confusion between paddle tennis and paddle boarding. <laughs> And he's denied playing. He's denied paddleboarding, but we still oh. don't know where he stands on paddle tennis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, there we are. Um, just finally on um, uh, on coronavirus, uh, our colleague Alison Rudd in the Times Thunder today has been talking about footballers becoming political animals, and now they're trying to get people to promote uh, the vaccine. Is this a good? Th is there a point where? Because then the problem is footballers. If you get too involved in politics. Well, but they become part of the national. It's very difficult for them to say, "I'm just a footballer. I just want to play football." Uh, yeah, but I don't think they should just say, "I'm I, I'm just a footballer. I want to play football." Yeah, so yes, I think they should promote vaccines. I think the, Jordan Henderson, in particular, captain Liverpool, did some great work during the pandemic. Mark Noble at West Ham, and, and obviously Marcus Rashford. So yeah, why should the the, the days when they, they said, "Oh, well, I, I don't want it to be political," I think they're over. I mean, we know that they know that we know they're over because of the whole taking the knee thing. I mean, politics is very much arrived in football, and it's a good thing. But, uh, um, Alice, what about then the fact that they're going to go to Qatar next year? I mean, they then face a legitimate question then, don't they, about whether or not they should be going, given the human rights records uh, of the country that's holding the World Cup? Yeah, I, I, we can't expect them to solve all the world's problems, I have to say. But I, I do think on vaccines, it's an obvious one, just because I can't bear the fact that we could be wasting money on trying to bribe children, you know, with McDonald's or with, you know, anything. I mean, just that we don't want to spend any more money trying to get children to have vaccines. So if you can get the footballers to do it and they'll do it for free, that's fantastic and amazing. And in fact, I think the whole way through this pandemic, they've been incredible because, you know, at the beginning, if you remember, they were, all, we were told that they were going to be you know, by Matt Hancock, that they were appalling yeah. and, you know, overly paid and, you know, they were sort of rich kids, basically. And in fact, now what's happened is they both can play football and they're leading the way and showing the example. And I think if they do it for vaccines as well, it'd be incredible. But I think they should say something about Qatar, actually. Uh, I think that'd be fine if they did. 
I mean, they should probably go because it's their job, but there's nothing, nothing wrong with uh, making a few uh, relevant comments about Qatar and the fact that, I mean, it hosts the Taliban, doesn't it? It's had Taliban government in exile in Qatar, so... Yeah, it's... Uh, well, we'll see how that pans yeah. out because, I mean, the same, you know, the same... We've had the same question which we've discussed about whether or not... Uh, Team GB should go to the Winter Olympics, which are being held in China. Um, and yeah, once you once you start saying you've got political views on things, then then maybe. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I I think I don't. Those people who say, "Oh, it's not political; it's you know, it's sports," like they used to do with the apartheid and the sanction. Yeah, everything's political. It just yeah. it, it it is. And the fact that's it's fine. being held in these places is political. Yeah. that's you know, yeah. I mean, it's all money and politics and all that. Yeah. all that rolled up. Uh, the first message has come in from uh, Barbara. Uh, saying you're being totally disingenuous about Nowzad, which is the dog and cat people. Uh, ben Wallace has now been overruled about pen farthing and the Nowzad chatter. It's not funny. Good job you don't take calls or you're getting away with your nonsense. <laughs> so there we are. Thank you, Barbara. Do keep do 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 keep in touch. Eight seven trouble two. Start your rest of the word times. You can tweet me at Times Radio. Lovely to see you, Robert. Hopefully, Alice. So might we see you next week, Alice? Might we be together? All three of well, us. Well, I hope so. Yeah, no, I do. Unprecedented scene. So. We need a reunion, don't we? Yeah, and then we'll be in right. five or six or seven days a week. I'll tell you know. what, if that happens, I'll buy us all nice coffee. A proper coffee. Yeah, rather than that filth that Robert's <laughs> working, yeah. chewing his way through. Uh, lovely to see you as ever. You can read Alice's column in the Times today. You can obviously read Robert in the Times as well. Uh, just get yourself a digital subscription. Uh, if you go online right now, thetimes.co.uk, you get your first month for free. Up next is Tish United Kingdom. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time on a Wednesday. We always uh, get the political news from the four corners of the UK. Uh, and uh, I'm delighted today to be joined by Tristan Cork, who's a reporter at Bristol Live. Hi, Tristan. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Now, I'm, I will um, come to you about this properly in a moment, but cause I want to speak to you as well about this competition to find the best place in the UK, which obviously you've right. written that, 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 that is Bristol. So I'll ask you for your 
your uh, your case for why Bristol's the best place in the UK in a moment. Uh, John Boothman, Times Scotland correspondent. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'll uh, just uh, where are you in Scotland, and is that the best place in the UK? I'm in a wee place called Preston Pans, a few miles from Edinburgh, and at this time of the year. Even though we've had lots of restrictions, Edinburgh's the best place to come because the festival's on. Oh, that's a good... You're making the good case. Uh, Theo Davis-Lewis is Chief Political Commentator from the, uh, the National in Wales. Hi, Theo. Borodar, Matt. Borodar to you. Whereabouts in Wales are you? Well, from Tennessee in Carmarthenshire, which is obviously God's own country. Uh, but I'm sure you're going to hear convincing arguments from everywhere <laughs> across the UK today, Absolutely. as well as Wales. Absolutely right. We'll come to that in a second. And Amanda Ferguson, a journalist in Northern Ireland as well. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Matt. It, it seems to me that this is a rhetorical question uh, because, of course, everyone knows that Belfast is the best place in the UK. It's also <laughs> the best place in Ireland. It's also the best place in the world. Um, you know, I love where I'm from and you have to have confidence. We're only 3% of the UK, but we certainly uh, make up for that in attention. So all your listeners should visit Belfast and see for themselves. Very good. Well, 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 you can do your full pitch in a moment. Mike has already been in touch. Uh, listener Mike has been in touch. So I'm not going to tell you the best place in the UK. Otherwise, lots of wallies from London will flood down and mess it up. Uh, cheerful greetings from Mike. That's in Porthpeen in Cornwall, which is a lovely part of the world. Uh, somebody has already said, love Bristol. As a Londoner, I'm surprised how lovely it is. Well, I think that's a, that is a compliment there. It is a compliment. Right, well, we will do all that in a moment. Keep your, your thoughts coming in. The best place in the UK. But let's let's turn our attention to the whole point of this, uh, which is to do the politics. Um, let's go to Scotland first of all. Uh, John Boothman, um, the sort of away from Afghanistan, the sort of big political story coming out of uh, Scotland in particular was the decision, the announcement by Nicola Sturgeon yesterday uh, that Scotland would hold its own public inquiry into the handling of the pandemic. Yeah, well, uh, the, yesterday was an interesting day all around the pandemic on the public inquiry. I mean, that's something that's been broadly welcomed by the opposition parties. In fact, though, they're saying she should have announced it quicker. That having been said, um, I'm quite surprised that there's not a lot of people around saying that maybe we should just have had one big, great UK inquiry rather than a separate one in Scotland. There are so many common issues here, Matt. Uh, the PPE issue, how we were prepared for the pandemic, the care home deaths, very similar guidance, though different timings around the country. Um, I think there's still, you know, despite the fact this has been announced, uh, Nicola Sturgeon wanted to announce it in our first hundred days. Um, I still think there's some questions to be asked about that. And how, because cases are at a new high in Scotland too. Nicola Sturgeon said she wouldn't rule out uh, the reintroduction of some COVID restrictions. How is she, the, um, maybe Boris Johnson's been getting so much grief about Afghanistan. He hasn't faced as many tough questions about uh, coronavirus. How is um, Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the pandemic in Scotland being seen right now? Well, you know, we, we have had a different timetable broadly from the other uh, within the four nations uh, here in Scotland. Uh, cases have doubled in the last week because a fortnight ago, of course, we lifted the remaining restrictions by and large that we had. Crucially, last week and the week late the week before, schools started going back. So yesterday, as I say, cases have doubled in the last week. Uh, 4,000 cases, the highest number of cases recorded. Nicola Sturgeon's now worried that the hospital numbers are going to go up. Uh, roughly a third of those 4,000 cases, I should say, are under the age of 19. 
800 of them under the age of 14, which suggests something about the school's Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, she's been a steady hand throughout this, as we've all noted in the past. Some of the gloss in terms of her handling seems to be dropping off in the past week. Uh, there was uh, one uh, company had polled uh, approval ratings, which showed that Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings had dropped by 10 points, partly to do with COVID, partly, I suspect, because of our handling of a lot of other issues in the domestic agenda. Yeah, it's interesting, the point you make there, John, about how uh, because of the, the schools going back earlier in Scotland, it maybe gives a bit of a clue as to what will happen in other parts of the UK when schools go back um, too. Um, let's go to Northern Ireland now. Um, Amanda Ferguson, what's the situation there with cases um, and uh, restrictions? Yeah, unfortunately, we're in a bit of a mess at the moment. Just to give a bit of context, in June, uh, there was two deaths and around 200 cases per day. And so far in August, there has been 134 deaths and we had 1,648 cases yesterday. Uh, those figures will be updated after lunchtime. And I know that the numbers may appear small uh, to your listeners, but obviously Northern Ireland's population, you know, we're not even a, a population as big as Manchester. Um, our infection rate at the moment is 630 uh, per 100,000. That's almost the highest rate in the developed world. Uh, per capita, I believe we're third in the world. I think George is uh, just ahead of us there. And I think that some of the reasons for that is that the Delta variant arrived later in Northern Ireland. So we are around the peak of this kind of summer surge, uh, but we're not through that yet. And uh, the pressure on the health service um, you know, is considerable at the moment. Uh, you know, my understanding is we're level with England and so on for fully vaccinated, you know, double jabbed uh, people. But our first jab uptake seems to have stuttered for a variety of reasons. Uh, and why why is that? What are the what are the reasons for the for the slow uptake? Well, uh, social deprivation um, is one of the issues in, in areas that will be considered socially deprived. The vaccine uptake is lower. Now, deprivation, Northern Ireland wards uh, are among some of the, the worst in, in the UK. Uh, we also know that you know various different things are feeding into this around, you know, maybe conspiracy theories, extreme religious elements, um, you know, perhaps the, the government pulling in different directions. And I sometimes wonder is perhaps our, our culture of sort of rebelliousness and lawlessness a little bit into this. And I think that the, the mixed messaging around younger people where they were sort of originally told that it wasn't something for them to worry about and now that's where we're struggling to get the numbers up now it should be reminded that you know the vast majority you know 85 percent and then some have come forward to be vaccinated uh, but I think that the the health authorities the chief medical officer and the health department have said they really want to get the vaccination rate up to 90 percent and because they feel that that would help ease the the pressures on the hospitals at the moment that's part of the challenge that's been facing Northern Ireland. What's the picture in, in Wales, uh, Theo? Um, how, how are the cases looking? Um, what about restrictions? And is, is Wales going to have its own uh, public in, inquiry as well? Well, a few questions in there. I think the last <laughs> one's probably the trickiest one for Mark Drake with the First Minister. In terms of cases, Matt, I think we've seen over the last 24 hours yesterday uh, around 1,300, uh, 1,400 cases. Uh, which you know is is a uh, is a marked rise from what we've seen over the last few weeks. Probably echoing the picture that we've seen in other parts of the UK as restrictions have eased. It, has, it is actually a review week uh, here in Wales. So the first minister, I think, will be reviewing restrictions on Friday. But I don't think uh, we'll see much of a change uh, at all uh, in those restrictions. But as you say, as you alluded to there, uh, the big question for the first minister here uh, in Cardiff is whether there's going to be a Wales-only public inquiry into COVID and. You know, after 
the Scottish government announced plans to hold its own investigation as well as a UK-wide inquiry. And there's been significant pressure on, on Mark Drakeford, probably for the first time over the last few months since the election, really, in May. Uh, to have that inquiry, he's faced pressure from Plaid Cymru, the Welsh nationalists, as well as the Welsh Conservatives, to hold that inquiry. Uh, and it is, it is quite strange for all of the uh, independent decisions that the Welsh government have taken over the last 18 months, they seem very ambivalent um, towards this inquiry, but now they're facing pressure from the backbenches as well to hold this inquiry. And I think we might see possibly one of the first uh, major U-turns in the Welsh government over the next week or two on this inquiry, because there's so much political pressure on the first minister at the minute. That's interesting. Presumably, yeah, the Nicola Sturgeon uh, decision will have uh, affected that as well. And in terms of schools going back, um, schools back in Wales a bit earlier than they are in England? Yeah, and, you know, Mark Drakeford has always been, you know, very, very uh, clear that what happens in Wales is different uh, than England. You know, Wales is not England. I keep saying it to you, Matt, every single, every single week I come on. Uh, and I think that's a marked shift that what we've uh, seen really uh, over the last 18 months is a, is a pattern of Wales uh, diverging uh, for, for public health reasons. Uh, but also there's other things such as the vaccination programme in Wales. We've had a discussion about that in terms of the picture in Northern Ireland, but in Wales, you know, as I've said to you before, has been leading the way uh, with vaccination. And that's been across all age groups and in terms of the single jab and the double jab as well. So uh, I think the First Minister is pretty confident, but is this week has been signalling that the, the return of restrictions is by no means impossible. And of course, young people uh, and, you know, mixing and being in schools and so on is probably a concern there. So, you know, we'll have to keep an eye out to see what changes, particularly uh, into next month as schools uh, go back and people start to come back to some sort of normality. Matt, can I say something here? Um, one of the things that there's a great concern about in Scotland, and I'm sure it will be the case across the UK, is that in two and a half weeks' time, we've got our universities coming back, not just international students, but students coming in from all over uh, the country, travelling about to their different places. And that's something that's causing some concern here. Yeah, that's it. and presumably that's, that, I mean, that is the case right across uh, uh, the UK too, I imagine. Um, uh, Tristan Cork in Bristol, obviously Bristol's a big university uh, city and actually had quite a lot of, uh, from memory, you had quite a lot of cases of uh, coronavirus when the universities went back in September. Yeah, that's right, we did. Um, although, you know, it wasn't just the university, it was uh, the schools as well yeah. and um, kind of across the board. I mean, in Bristol, cases of, of they peaked towards the end of the summer term in, in by mid-July and then dropped. Um, but have been pretty much consistent at about sort of 300 a day um, in the city itself. And the fear is that when schools go back in, you know, in, in what, just a couple of weeks time, those cases will go back up again. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see a return to the kind of numbers we, we, had, um, we had at the start of the summer. And uh, in terms of um, sort of restrictions being lifted, is, is life in Bristol reasonably normal? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there's gigs going on. There's um, the nightclubs are back open. People are back at restaurants and stuff. The only, um, the only, it, it's quite a foodie city. There's loads of great restaurants here and stuff, and a big kind of eating out culture. And um, you often see restaurants that have closed, had to close for a week or something because staff have got um, got COVID. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't think there was a pandemic on. You wouldn't think that the case numbers were as high now as they were in January, which is the case, or back in November as well. 
um, here, it's, it's remarkable. It's just it's as if people have kind of just forgotten that there's a pandemic on. Um, yeah. It's really weird. Just trying to just trying to forget all about. It. Well, it, uh, not only um, maybe people have been focusing on the other big story of the summer, of course, which is in your patch, um, Geronimo. How uh, the the alpaca? Uh, it's oh yeah, still on death row. Um, uh, how is this? How do you sort of treat this local? Obviously, there's a national sort. I'd be a little bit dismissive of it on the show, having written for many years about the impact of TB on cattle farms and all that sort of thing. Um, what is? Give us a give us an update on on the alpaca. Uh, she, Geronimo, he is still um, still alive and snorting and spitting and um and no and there was a call out actually they haven't they haven't come to to do the deed yet but there was a call when the, on the day that they were due there was a call out from um to animal rights activists to kind of form a human shield around her pen to stop the uh the, the men from defra or women i guess the vets from defra who uh, go there so yeah it's um there's a bit of a stalemate at the moment i think in the courts at the moment it's been i mean this has been a case that's been rumbling on for two years i think um and it does seem a little bit i mean the whole thing with with tb and cattle and the badger cull and everything down in the west country has been a massive issue yeah um and it's you know it's it's actually there are parallels to draw with covid really because there's kind of like disputes over the science you know there's like they, they kill all the badgers, but then it, then the, the, do badgers actually pass on TB to the cattle? And, and isn't it the way we raise cattle and transport them all over the place and keep them all close together? Is that what's causing it? So yeah, it's it's um, you know, Geronimo is not going to go and infect a, a herd of cattle. He, he stays in his own paddock and he's not going anywhere. So it seems a little bit over the top. It's quite, it's quite the saga. It's quite the saga. Uh, talking of sarkas, let's turn our attention to Northern Irish politics uh, in particular. And uh, the saga of who is leading the DUP and from where continues, uh, Amanda. What's the latest on uh, what uh, Sir Geoffrey Johnson, the, the new-ish leader of the DUP? Um, currently, he's an MP and he's not in Stormont. What's the latest on his plans to, to change that? Yes, that's right. Well, you can't be first minister without being a Stormont MLA. So the, the DUP has been on a, a bit of a roller coaster uh, since spring. First, Arlene Foster was ousted as leader. Then Edmund Putz was DUP leader for a month. Then he was ousted. And the current leader is Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, MP for the Lagan Valley constituency. Now, nobody has stood aside um, from Stormont to let him co-opt into that seat. So at present, uh, Paul Given is the first minister. Now, Paul Given um, is... Uh, someone who shares a constituency office with uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson and also Edwin Putz. So they're in the tricky position at the moment where each constituency in Northern Ireland has five Stormont seats and the DUP has two assembly seats in Lagan Valley at present and they're held by Paul Given and Edwin Putz. So the DUP think at the next assembly election that they could maybe get three seats, but that is a risk and it's a gamble as well. So Donaldson has said that he'll be standing in the assembly election uh, but Edwin Putz was on the airwaves this morning saying he thinks he will stand in the assembly election, but he didn't rule out standing uh, in the Westminster by-election that will be triggered uh, by Geoffrey Donaldson's departure. So they really want any by-election for Lagan Valley for the Westminster seat to take place on the same day uh, next year uh, as the assembly election. So as we've seen over this last year, it's hard to predict what's going to happen there, but it's a bit of a dicey uh, position for the new leader of the DUP uh, to be in at the moment that he doesn't necessarily 
have a clear route back to Stormont where he wants to take up a First Minister role. Uh, yeah, it's ongoing. It's 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 a good one to keep an eye on, but it's quite quite the saga. Uh, the ongoing uh, um, events in the DUP. Right in a moment, I'm going to ask you to make your case for wherever it is that you think is the best place in the UK. And Tristan can explain what's actually going on uh, with this uh, competition. You're listening to uh, Dish United Kingdom with Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the helping tools you need to grow your business online. Times Radio Breakfast, tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. The August presenter raffle continues and this week on Breakfast you've got me, Luke Jones, and I have a top cast of co-hosts, Libby Purvis, back on your morning airwaves, and Chloe Tilly, plus Jenny Kleeman will have all the news from Westminster, Afghanistan and beyond. Times Radio Breakfast, tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Supporting the small business champions behind Team GB. Yeah, we're doing Dis uh, uh, United Kingdom uh, right now, where we get uh, the news from the four corners of the UK. Um, and uh, let's go to Bristol. Tristan Cork, reporter at Bristol Live. Uh, and Tristan, this week you've been writing a sort of, it was almost like a love letter to Bristol. Uh, what, uh, explain what, what's your case for why Bristol is the best place in the UK and why you've been uh, why you've been writing it. So this is part of, uh, obviously, Bristol Post, Bristol Live is part of Reach Empire. And we've got the whole company nationwide has got a competition running um, to vote to where people can vote for their favourite place in the UK. And I was asked to write uh, a piece about why Bristol's so great. And um, and obviously, I think the thing to say is that, that, that it's not pe people in Bristol, and it's, I try and explain this in the article, people in Bristol don't think necessarily Bristol's that great you know they know <laughs> what it's like really but um, but you don't so don't ask people in Bristol ask the people who um you know like the on the Condé Nast Traveller Guide the Times the Telegraph the Guardian the Vanity Fair you ask any you know global and international and international travel writers features magazines everyone you know rough guides all that they all say Bristol is like the best, the coolest, the trendiest, the hippest place to visit and the best place to live. And um, quite why that is, you know, I, it, it's, um, you, know, just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I can't explain why Bristol's so great. It just is. Um, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's been a place of like invention, creativity and, and um, innovation for centuries. I found out recently the, the, the blanket was invented in Bristol and Ribena was invented in Bristol <laughs> and also we're always ahead of anything that happens in London it's not like London, what happens in London filters out to the to the regions Bristol's like its own central um, area and we uh, you know things that happen in Bristol first then go up to London so um, yeah you just have to come in people who come to Bristol don't leave I mean, we're, you mentioned earlier we're a university city. Um, people who come to university, lots of places, lots of people go to university in wherever it might be, from Nor Norwich, Edinburgh, wherever, and they go back home or move somewhere else. People come to university in Bristol and no one leaves because it's that great. I can't explain. Um, <laughs> can't explain. You You're doing a very it. good job. You're doing a very good job. I feel like I need to bring in some of the other. Who wants to ch properly challenge Tristan then for uh, Bristol being the best place in the UK? Who wants to jump in? 
I'll go for it, Matt, because I probably have the hardest sell here today because of Belfast's complicated history and the fact that it's a, a divided society. But Northern Ireland is a, a unique part of the UK. Um, Belfast is one of those places that it's sort of rich in British and Irish culture. And our peace process is an example to the rest of the world. We've got great cultural stars, hospitality is the best in the world. It's an absolutely stunning place. The, the coastline is just beautiful. And while we do have some of the worst deprivation and difficulties with segregation and sectarianism and all of the well-rehearsed uh, stories about Northern Ireland, the majority of people are brilliant. They're the finest people in the world and it is a bonkers place, but the people are the best crack. And also there's a chance that Northern Ireland would vote to leave the UK, so we need incentives to stay. <laughs> Good. That's a nice, yeah, that's a good case uh, that you've been making there for, for Belfast. Uh, John or Thea, do you want to jump in? Look, can I, let me tell you what happened to me yesterday. I got out, out of a train at Waverley Station. I walked up to the, up the hill in a glorious day and Princess Street Gardens was in front of me, the galleries, the castle. I walked up Victoria Street. There were people outside, sitting outside in the sun, eating and drinking, round up the high street. There were people singing, there were performers up past where uh, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter, round the corner through the university, where a big sign where Charles Darwin studied medicine and then botany, went to a classical concert at lunchtime, walked back out, went round the corner to a Greek restaurant. I was tired, right, by the middle of the afternoon. My senses were utterly assaulted. There is no better place than Edinburgh in the summer during the festival. Yeah, wow. For a few weeks of the year, John. For a few weeks of the year, not all year round. Eh? Well, There's look, there is... I give up. Go on, Theo. Yeah. Go on, Theo. Make the, the case, old, make the case the for Wales. Well, I, you know, Matt, I let them all squabble about their own little patches around the UK. But we all know, of course, that in Wales, we've got a very vibrant culture. I mean, we're actually, the culture in Wales is so vibrant that there's actually infighting over the bids for the UK City of Culture. There's three in North Wales. Everyone's arguing with each other. It's very Welsh to do that, obviously. But there's so many good places here in Wales, you know, the seaside towns, the rolling hills, you know, in, in, in Snowdonia and Neroiva, the locals are complaining that people are climbing up there at 4 a.m. Um, it's that beautiful. So, you know, of course, there are little patches. You've got, you've got Edinburgh, you've got Bristol. But take Wales as a country, take it as a culture, take it as you know, as a people actually. And what you have there is a dynamic language. You have cities like Cardiff and Swansea. Then you have little cities like St. David's, which is the smallest city in the UK. And you have those rolling hills in mid Wales, all the way up to Ennis Morn, where some of the most beautiful places are. You know, we recently had a UN heritage site uh, in the old uh, slate works in, in North Wales. And that just shows you what we have. We're a relic of Britain in the past, but I think we've also got um, you know, a place in the Britain in the future as well. So I think, of course, there's many, many good places around the UK, but I don't <laughs> think you could argue with what the most rugged and vibrant is across the UK, and that's definitely Wales. I thought you were going to describe yourself as rugged and vibrant then. Um, uh, well, I mean, so far, Theo, it has to be said, um, uh, more people agree with you on this, uh, course, this, this poll. Course. In the current uh, standings, uh, Liverpool is first, then Newcastle, and then Wales has been treated as a whole uh, in of this course. poll. Um, then, uh, of the ones we've just been discussing, Edinburgh is at uh, 10th place. Uh, Bristol is at 11th, so that's quite close. And then Belfast is currently down at 19th. 
uh, in this That's part. no surprise that we're lingering down the bottom. It always happens to us. We're always left out. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> it's not bad. There out. were 44 different places in the poll, and quite a lot of them are going to drop out. So Gloucestershire, London, Nottinghamshire, Bath, Hertfordshire, uh, Berkshire, Northamptonshire, Surrey, uh, Buckinghamshire and Hove. They're all going to drop out, apparently, of this poll. So so you're not you're all still hanging on in there. Can I just point out, Matt, though, that the um, the thing one of the things about Bristol is that everyone is just so laid back. No one, no one can be bothered to vote. <laughs> John, somebody's just been in touch to say your Scotsman wasn't really in Edinburgh yesterday. The cafe that J.K. Rowling wrote in uh, burned down at six a.m. in a massive fire that closed all the roads you were raving about. Well, well, <laughs> well. I was round the corner from there yesterday. Oh, in okay. fact, I, um, there good. were a hundred firemen. I've never seen so many fire appliances, and actually, it was the cafe next door uh, okay. rather than the cafe itself. Very good. I fear that this is a row that could rumble on all, all day. But um, <laughs> let's let's end it there before we all fall out. Um, if you're if you're interested in that poll that uh, the reach the local uh, newspaper group is doing, um, I've just tweeted a link to it because it's quite funny if you want to go on there and vote. Uh, lovely to speak to all those. Tristan Court, their reporter at Bristol Live, making the case of Bristol. Uh, John Boothman, Times Scotland correspondent, making the case for Edinburgh. Uh, Theo Davis Lewis, uh, the chief political commentator for the National in Wales, sort of making the case for Kamartha, but also Wales uh, in general. And Amanda, Amanda Ferguson. Uh, journalist in Belfast in Northern Ireland. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.